We'll begin in our study today in Matthew's Gospel, where we've been studying this experience of Jesus as he faces many things before his final crucifixion. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's late at night. He and his disciples have gone there. He's been praying. They have been sleeping. He had asked them to pray with him, but after a big meal, like a Passover meal, and as late as it was, you can understand that, well, your eyes kind of get heavy and it doesn't really matter whether your Lord has made such a request. Obviously, it's more important to just get some shut-eye. They did. Three times he goes to them and, what, are you still sleeping? Invites them to continue praying with them and goes a little bit further away from them and finds them again after he comes back, nodding off. And we left our study the last time by Jesus acknowledging the fact that, well, they needed to sleep. So he said, sleep on. And there's apparently some period of time between verse 46 where he tells them to sleep on and verse 47 or uh, verse 45 rather where he tells them to sleep on and verse 46 where he tells them to rise, it is time, the betrayer is at hand. We don't know how much time had gone by during that period between those two verses, but it was time. Jesus always knew precisely the time The details. What time is it? Jesus so often had told his disciples, my time has not yet come. But now, it is time. The time has come. Luke tells us that Jesus went to Jerusalem with his face set like a flint because that was exactly as it needed to be. And two times in this passage that we'll be looking at today, Jesus will be saying these words, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. So these things were written about Him. But did they know? Did they understand those Scriptures? Not likely. Did they believe Him when He said, I'm going to be crucified and raised again? Not likely. But they're his disciples, they're his followers, they're the ones that he has chosen to proclaim the good news to all the world. How could they not understand? How could they not really be getting what Jesus was saying? Because they had a different perspective, perhaps. They weren't filled with the Holy Spirit, by the way, so they didn't really have the power of the Spirit to deliver them from those things that would be trouble that they would have to face, trials that they would have to deal with, they didn't have the Spirit to give them the understanding, the, the, the insight that would come later. But in this time, though they are indeed followers of Christ, and they have at least acknowledged that He is the Christ, their understanding was based upon expectation to be delivered from Roman oppression. The Romans were brutal to the Hebrew people. They wanted out. And the promise of the Messiah for them in their way of thinking was just simply that he would come and sit on David's throne. And yes, that is the case. 
but it was not to be done then. The Scriptures must be fulfilled. All of the Scriptures, those Scriptures that they were anticipating, will indeed be complete, fulfilled in God's time. Here in this Gospel of Matthew, we find the account of a betrayal, of a denial, of a trial. Verse 47, verse 47, chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. I have to make mention of the fact that there are other accounts of these events that are given to us in all of the Gospels. John in particular gives us a good deal of information about this particular series of events that we'll be looking at first here tonight, today. And what John says about this group of soldiers, chief priests, elders of the people, is that they're armed, torches, swords. There's a cohort. That's a Roman army term, and it's usually considered to be about 600 men. A centurion was over a thousand men. A cohort was a portion of that centurion's responsibility. There were also legions in the Roman armies. A legion was 6,000 men. We'll see that word again later on in this study this morning. Keep that in mind. But there are 600 men here, along with Judas, one of the twelve. It says in verse 48, Now his betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, sees him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi and kissed him. Think about that. Betrayed with a kiss. What a friend. The psalmist records David lamenting the fact that he had a friend who betrayed him. And I frankly believe that that is written in the book of Psalms that it points to this betrayal, a fulfillment of that Old Testament scripture. Betrayed with one that I ate bread with, that I went with a throng into the temple with. My close friend has turned his heel against me. Betrayed him with a kiss. That is beyond understanding to me. But Jesus' response is even more. Amazing. Verse 50 says, But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Friend. The word is a term of close, intimate relationship. Dear friend, my companion, the one that I walked alongside with for three and a half years, friend. Why are you doing this? Why have you come? But he knew the answer to that, obviously. He knew all things. But since the passion in his 
words that he speaks to Judas. I believe that even then Judas could have said, Oh, I've sinned. Forgive me, Lord. And he would have received forgiveness. But we also know that he was doomed to this one cause. It was written of him. Friend, why did you come? John gives more detail again in this area of the encounter with Judas. John says that as they approached, Jesus stood and said, Who do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response, according to John, was, I am. Now, it's written, I am he, in your Bible translations, but the words in the original language were just simply the two words, I am. That should strike some degree of familiarity to you if you know anything about the Old Testament Scriptures, because in the book of Exodus, Moses had an encounter in the Sinai region, and he went upon a mountain where there was a bush set aflame but wasn't being consumed. And he stood before that bush, and a voice came from that bush and told Moses, put off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. And as the conversation with this voice from the bush continued, Moses was told that he was going to deliver the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt. And Moses asked a question. He said, well, who shall I say has sent me? And the response of that voice out of the bush, I am. Tell them I am has sent you. Jesus stands before these 600 souls most of whom probably didn't understand why they were even there. And when he said, I am, John tells us they all fell backwards on the ground. I'm convinced that Moses, or that rather Judas, was probably concerned that Jesus, because he knew the power that Jesus had manifest in many, many different situations, casting out of demons, calming of the sea, the healing of the blind and the lame. He was a miracle-working man of God. Judas had been with him, and, and, and even Judas himself had experienced that by having been sent out by Jesus and seeing those miracles by his own hand, because Jesus had said to them that they would do those things on his behalf. Judas was very much aware of the power that Jesus had available. And I believe that's probably why he decided we better get a lot of people here. So he got together as many as they could bring together in that one place. It was a very familiar place, by the way. Judas would have been quite familiar with that because it tells us in John's Gospel that they frequented that particular garden often. But Judas was trying to be kind of careful because he knew what Jesus was capable of. And Jesus demonstrated that in this one act. The statement that he made, I am, expression of that statement was such that every one of those 600 men fell backwards on the ground. 
I guess that's the only place in the Word of God where you can see the words slain in the Spirit having any context. But it's after that that Peter, who had promised the Lord that though these will leave you, I never will leave you, Peter, according to John, takes some action after they all get up from that event. He draws his sword and he takes a swing. Now, he's been sleeping, so he's probably still a little bit groggy and he doesn't really have a good, clear sense of everything going on around him. He's in the dark and he swings that sword and he cuts off the ear of one of those present. John tells us it was Peter who did that. And he also tells us that the man that he had attacked and whose ear he had cut off was named Malchus. He was a servant of the high priest. John also tells us, and Luke tells us as well, that Jesus took the ear and put it back on and healed Malchus. Well, those are just kind of fill-ins for what Matthew doesn't tell us. But here in Matthew's Gospel... Judas has come. Jesus asks the question, why have you come? And as soon as he asked that question, it tells us here that they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. He's very brief. But the betrayal has taken place. The betrayal that he had told his disciples about has now come to pass. And in verse 51 it says, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword. Now, Matthew doesn't say who. Remember, John does. It's Peter. I wonder, because Matthew was written while Peter was still alive, I, I suppose that you could defend Matthew's not having spoken about who it was. It was to, to protect Peter, because if the authorities got a hold of the writings of Matthew and saw that this was Peter, they might have arrested Peter, and Matthew wouldn't have wanted that. So it's a speculation here, but just go along with me. It's a filler. John, although, wrote his gospel at a much later date. Much time had passed. He was in his late 80s or early 90s when he wrote his gospel. Peter had already died, and so it had most of or all of the other apostles. But Matthew says, one of the disciples took his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his ear. And this is Jesus' response in verse 52. He says, But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and He will provide with me, listen, more than twelve legions of angels. A legion? Six thousand men? Twelve of them? Seventy-two thousand men. But we're talking angels here, not men. Well, so what? Well, I guess if you don't know the Scriptures very well, you might be able to say, so what? You know, 12,000 times 6 is, yeah, 72,000. Yeah, he, he could have called 72,000 angels, and that would have been enough to handle 6,000 men. But consider in Second Kings chapter 19, we have an account of one single angel wiping out 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. Multiply 72,000 times 185,000, you get 13.3-something billion 
that 72,000 angels probably could be capable of handling in just one sweep. Well, 8 billion people live on the earth today, and it was probably in that time less than a billion people on the earth, so I'd say that that was pretty much overkill. But he could have done it. He had that power. And I'm also considering the fact that those angels that he spoke of were ready to go. And I wonder if the Father must have had to restrain them from coming. We have seen, and it's been recorded in the Gospel records, that when Jesus was suffering in that moment of terrible, terrible torment, when he had to drink that cup that was before him, the Gospel record tells us that an angel came, Luke tells us that, to comfort him, to encourage him. An angel came when he was 40 days in the wilderness, some three and a half years before this. After he had been without food and water for 40 days, the angel came, one angel, to comfort. He had plenty of help at his disposal. One angel would have been enough, by the way. But he says, that is not going to happen. Why? The answer comes Verse 54, how then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Make no mistake, Jesus was very much aware of every detail that must be fulfilled precisely as it was written. After the resurrection, Jesus will be walking along the road to Emmaus with two disciples who were kind of downhearted over the events that had just taken place. And Jesus comes to them and says, what's going on? What's wrong with you guys? Well, they didn't really recognize him. And they said, haven't you heard? Don't you know what's been going on in Jerusalem? How uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who we thought was a great prophet, had been killed. And now it's the third day. and, and, And some have said he's been raised from the dead. But... They were very disappointed in all of the things that had happened, and so they were very uncertain about what's going to happen next. And so Jesus started talking to them, and he said, Don't you know the Scriptures? And he began to tell them all of the things about himself from the Old Testament Scriptures, and he revealed all of those Scriptures to them on their way to the city of Emmaus. What a remarkable Scripture Lesson that must have been. What a Bible study. Oh, I would love to have the recording of that one. They didn't understand, but he did. He knew everything, every detail. Those were the things that had to happen. There were things that were going to happen. He could have never had any possibility of having any degree of control over but yet they were fulfillment of the Word of God in the Old Testament Scriptures regarding Him. Isaiah 53, remarkable passage of Scripture that talks about the suffering Savior, the one who was to endure great persecution and souls who wanted to 
do so much damage to him that it's recorded, even though they did such things, plucking out his beard. And Isaiah tells about the fact that his face was so marred that you couldn't even recognize him as a man. Those are the things that Jesus was about to endure. And he faced those things knowing that it must be even as it is written. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Well, verse 55 says, In that hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching you in the temple, and you did not seize me. That's true, they didn't. Why were they not willing to do so? Because they were listening to the very Word of God from the very Son of God, and He spoke with a wisdom, with understanding, with power that they had never seen ever before. They were amazed at this One who claimed to be the Son of Man. But all this was done, Matthew writes, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook Him and fled. That also is fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures that say they will scatter when the shepherd is taken. The sheep will be scattered. That's the betrayal. It's a sad chapter in the gospel record, but it had to have happened just exactly as it did happen. Well, verse 57 continues now and talks about the trial. It's one of several trials, actually, but this is the main trial that takes place again at night. And it takes place in the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the appointed high priest appointed by the Roman government. There was also another man who was his father-in-law, whose name was Annas. And Annas was the Jewish high priest, a descendant of Levi, and rightfully held that position as high priest. But he was a scoundrel, and the Jews hated him. The Romans didn't trust him. So Annas appointed his son-in-law by Rome's approval to be the official high priest that Rome would accept. So they both are considered to be high priests, and you'll find that in the Gospel of John, they first go to Annas at his house, and then he sends them to Caiaphas in his house, and that's where the, the trial that Matthew records takes place. Other trials will take place later in the following morning. Pilate, Herod, back again with Pilate. All of these were not legal proceedings. The Jews had very specific rules and regulations. Some of them were oral, some of them were written. They were based upon Moses' commands in the books of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, where Moses talked about justice and Hebrew justice, according to Mosaic law, was very, very good. In fact, our judicial system is based much upon the Judean judgment system. 
At least it used to be. Now I'm not sure that it even does that. But in this case, the trial was not a legal proceeding. It was done at night. They weren't to have a trial at night. It was done during the Passover season. They weren't to have any trials during a holy season, especially on a Sabbath, which this was going to be. A special day, day of Passover. They weren't supposed to have anyone to be chosen as witnesses. Witnesses were to come to them. Everything that's written by Matthew and the other gospel writers with regard, regarding this trial in Caiaphas' house was not legal. It was a mock trial. But they had the conviction before they even did the investigation. They wanted him dead. And so they proceed with this trial to make it so that they could justify going to Rome and tell the Roman authorities, this man is to receive the death penalty. Now, why couldn't they do it themselves? Because in 6 AD, the Roman government took that privilege of the death penalty away from the Jews. Their process for conducting a trial where a conviction is made that capital punishment is required would be that they would stone that individual. They no longer had that authority to make that decision in a legal proceeding. So they had to get the Roman government involved. That meant they couldn't go to the Roman government and say, this man is a blasphemer against our religion. The Roman government would look at that and say, and they did, that's your problem. That has nothing to do with Rome. Get him out of here. That was one of the things that Pilate later on would try to do to dismiss the case because it was a religious issue, not a civil issue. But they were looking for a way around that, and they seemed to believe that they found it in this mock trial. Reading from verse 57, Matthew records these words, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They sought false counsel. They knew it was false. They sought it because they wanted to do this, put him to death. And the only way that they could do that was to bring an accusation that would stick before the Roman government. So they sought individuals who would come and testify against Jesus so that they could put this case against Jesus forward. But they found none, it tells us in verse 60. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. This is a setup. It says in verse 61, And they said, This fellow, talking about Jesus, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That wouldn't be an issue to the Roman authorities. But it became a convincing two-witness statement. They finally found two witnesses that could agree on something. 
And again, listen carefully to what these two witnesses said. This man said, they're putting words in Jesus' mouth. I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. But he wasn't talking about the temple that Solomon had built and that Herod had been spending the last 40 years upon. It was a reference to his body. John tells us that specifically. And that was indeed the purpose of Jesus having said those words. If you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again on the third day. That's what Jesus had said. But they twisted his words and they're saying that he said that about the building that they so cherished. And because there were two of them, it was a witness that was solid in their eyes. Verse 62 says, And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? I find that most amusing. He never spoke a word in defense of himself. As a sheep before his shearers is silent, so was he. Isaiah 53. What is it these men testify against you, taunting him? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. The high priest could make a demand of anyone that he was inquiring to testify or to speak. And he puts him under an oath to answer this question. That is the only legal thing that is done in this entire proceeding. The high priest could request that kind of request. And when it is made because it's an oath under God, that person had to respond. He asked really two questions, doesn't he? He says, tell us if you are the Christ. Tell us if you are the Son of God. They believed, although Jews don't typically believe this now in this present hour, But in Jesus' day, they understood the Scriptures to be very specific regarding the one who was called the Christ, or in Hebrew language, the Messiah. And he was known as the Son of God in their understanding of the Scriptures because Psalm 2 tells us that the Father speaks to the Son, Thou art my beloved Son, this day I have begotten you. Other places in the Word of God were the Son of God is spoken of as being the Deliverer, the Messiah that was to come. They believed that He was in this case not the Messiah and not the Son of God. They did not accept all that He had done to prove that He was both of those. Jesus then responds. Finally, Jesus opens His mouth in this mock trial because He's under oath and He does willingly now answer the question that is put before Him. Listen to what Jesus says. He says in verse 64, It is as you said. The answer comes from Jesus' lips. You have said it. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. You have said it. And then he goes on to say, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father, at the right hand of the power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is here referring to a passage in the Old Testament Scriptures, 
out of the prophet Daniel. The chapter 7 of the prophet Daniel, he writes of these things, that he saw a vision, and the Ancient of Days was seated on a throne, and one like the Son of Man came before him, and he was given great power and authority, and he was sent by the one who was sitting upon the throne to the earth, in the clouds, to present himself as their Messiah. Daniel wrote of those things, Jesus saying, that's me. I'm the one who that was speaking of. I am indeed the Messiah. I am indeed the Son of God. Make no mistake, there was no doubt in Jesus' mind about who he was and why he had come. But they didn't believe it. They wouldn't accept it. Why? Because they had such hatred for what he had done, turning the people against them. Ruining their business. Upsetting the apple cart, if you will. Actually, he upset the tables in the temple. The money changers. It cost him a great deal of money and embarrassment. They weren't willing to accept any of that. They hated him. They weren't going to change their minds about him. And there are people today who are just as insistent upon hating this one that we want to love and cherish as our Lord and Savior. And don't forget, by the way, Jesus said, if they hate me because you were followers of me, they will hate you also. Just as an aside, I was sent an email uh, the other day, this last week. And in that email, there was a reference to a church that wanted to have the privilege of meeting in a school building on a Sunday morning in Herman, just not too far from here. Well, they went to a school board meeting where one of the board members began to inquire, what are your services like? Do you accept LBGTQ? Are you willing to accept same Sex, marriage, what about abortion? They asked all of these questions of the leaders of the church before they could give approval for the church to meet on Sunday in that building. There is no way that that should have been allowed. Those weren't the kinds of questions that were pertinent to the request. But because of that person's hardened heart, that person would not accept probability of a church entering into a school building and worshiping God in the way they choose because he hates Jesus Christ. God help him. He's just as in danger as these men were standing before Jesus here in this gospel record. He says then in verse 65, the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. It wasn't blasphemy at all. It was truth. They wouldn't accept it as truth. So the only other option was that it was blasphemous. And blasphemy was deserving of death in their eyes. And by the way, the high priest tearing his clothes was against Scripture. 
Moses said that the high priest must never do so? Everything here is contrary to what God's Word intended for the people of God. But it all needed to be done in order for the Scriptures to be fulfilled. So he says, the high priest asks the question to those who were gathered with him, what do you think? They answered and said, he's deserving of death. The death sentence is being meted out. And they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us Christ, who is the one who struck you? Again, John adds a little bit more detail. Luke also. They put a blindfold on him. They covered his eyes. They spit in his face. They plucked out his beard. They slapped him, and being blindfolded, he would not have known that the blow was coming. Can you imagine if you are in a situation where somebody's about to strike you, and you see that fist coming, what are you going to do? You are going to move as quickly as you can away from that uh, oncoming fist because you don't want it to hit you. But he had that option taken away from him. He's blindfolded. He's standing there, and all of a sudden he gets hit. And again, and again, and spit upon. These are religious men. These are leaders of the people of God. God help us. The betrayal, the trial, and now the denial. Verse 69 says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with him. Remember Peter's words to Jesus? Though they deny you, I will never deny you. I'll stand with you. I'll fight for you. He just demonstrated that willingness to die for him by cutting off Malchus's ear, risking his own life. But when faced with a challenge by a young girl in the garden, verse 7 he says, he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're saying. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Get out of here. That was his attitude. That was his response. One. Verse 71 says, And when he had gone out to the gateway, a little bit further away from the activity, because he didn't really want to be uh, in the middle of the crowd, so to speak, another girl saw him and said to him, or those who were with them, This fellow also was Jesus of Nazareth. But again, denial number two, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. Now it's getting more intense. Peter makes an oath. It's like you and I would swear on a book of Bibles or whatever you want to swear upon, swear on your mother's grave or whatever you think is appropriate. When you make an oath, it is intended to be kept. It is intended to be truthful. I do not know the man. Denial number two. A little later, verse 73 tells us, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Remember, he was a Galilean. The North Country guys spoke in a different dialect than the people down in Judah. 
They were like Ellsworth compared to York. People from York speak like more Bostonian, and people from Ellsworth speak like, well, you all know what that sounds like. But they were understanding that this man's speaking betrayed him because of the dialect. Yeah, you're a Galilean. There's no mistaking. You must be one of them. Again, number three, then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. What follows after that third denial? The cock crows three times. Remember Jesus telling Peter that when you are confronted, you will deny me three times? Before the cock crows, it will be done. Just as Peter was told, just as Jesus had said, after all, the Scriptures must be fulfilled. What's the difference between Peter's denial and Judas' betrayal? The difference is the heart of the individual. We'll tell the story of Judas later. But in Peter's case, when he heard the cock crowing, he remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Great remorse. Peter repented. Peter recognized that he had sinned. And Peter was restored. Didn't happen overnight. It took at least three days. The Bible tells us that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, met with Peter. And I wonder what that meeting must have been like. It's another one of those times where we wish you had the video of this one. But he was restored. And because of that, he became great leader in the church. He wasn't without fault still. He had issues that still needed to be dealt with. He was still very much a Jew. And as a Jew, he didn't want to have any kind of a relationship with a fellowship with Gentiles. Jesus had to change that and did. On more than one occasion, that was the case. Peter didn't really want to go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius was a Gentile, a centurion. He couldn't go into a Gentile's home. That was against Jewish tradition. The Lord had to break him of that and did. And as a result, people were saved. And if that hadn't happened, I wonder if we would be involved in a church service here this morning. The Word of God began to spread to the Gentile nations, partly because of Peter, mostly because of another apostle named Paul. But Peter was indeed responsible for the teaching of the Word of God. And on the very first day that the church was established, 
on the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved because of Peter's preaching. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and it was then that he became a servant of God. And yes, he did have other issues that needed to be dealt with, but he was faithful to his God to the very end. And we find tradition telling us that Peter was crucified like his master, except that he didn't want to be crucified the way exactly that his master was crucified. He wanted to be crucified upside down. And that's how he died, serving his Savior to the very end. Peter denied him. Why would God give him such opportunity? Because of God's love for Peter. Remember, Jesus had told Peter, and you haven't read that in Matthew's Gospel, but it's in other Gospel records where when he tells Peter that he will deny him, he also encourages Peter by saying, and when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what Peter did. That's what we all should be doing, my friends. Strengthening one another as the day approaches. As things get more and more difficult in the world around us, we should be about the business that God has called us to. Filled with His Holy Spirit so that we can present the truth to those who will open their ears and minds to this truth that they might receive, believe, accept, and live for Him in these last hours. Last thing I want to mention is I just saw this morning a short informational story about an event that's gone on in Kentucky. I forget the name of the school. It's a Christian school. They have a Wednesday worship service, prayer meeting. Just like any other prayer meeting, apparently it started out on that Wednesday night this last week. But instead of lasting the normal period of time, about an hour or so, it was still going on the following morning. People were touched by the Spirit of God. They were, obviously, something was happening in that room where they were gathered. Something spectacular, something supernatural, something great, something beyond their expectation to keep them there all night long, praying and worshiping and singing songs to the Lord. This is college students in a college town Why isn't it happening in our town? It should be. I want it to be. I hope it will be. I hope you want it too.